Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses uh, 16 through 18. These are the words of Jesus. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. These are the words of Christ. Thanks be to God. You know, intermittent fasting has become a popular weight loss technique. I know several of you are on that. Apparently, the blood insulin levels in your body drops and your human growth hormone spikes and it facilitates burning fat. Some people fast to lose weight. Some people fast to detoxify their bodies. And some fasts are performance-related. I read of a CEO of a tech startup company where a team of employees, they would get their employees and they would fast together and then they would use software that measures their ketones levels and biosignatures and then uh, correlate that to their workplace productivity, which I thought, that sounds like a HIPAA violation. (laughs) (laughs) But none of those are Christian reasons to fast. I say that, uh, you, you may think, I'm... I'm supposed to fast? How did I never, how was I never taught that before? I'm supposed to fast? Well, yeah, Jesus expects you to. That's why in verse 16, in the other verse, verse 18, it's not if you fast, he says when you fast. The Pharisees and the other devout Jews always fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. They were 24-hour fasts. They would go from dinner to dinner. The disciples of John the Baptist did the same, but those who followed Jesus did not fast as routinely or as rigorously as was expected of a rabbi and his disciples. And Jesus caught a lot of flack for that. So elsewhere in the Bible, he explains this by comparing his own ministry to a wedding celebration where he is the groom. He says, look, nobody, nobody abstains from food or drink when you're at a wedding. Like, that's a time to party. And that's what me and my disciples are doing. We're celebrating a gospel party. (laughs) We're eating and drinking because it's that time. Although, there will be a time in the future when the groom is taken away, and then my disciples will need to fast. He doesn't give us many specifics on how to do it. You'll search and find there is no how long, or how often, or, or how to do it. There's only this one how not to fast. And here he tells us, I don't advertise it. And the religious people in his day would allow their beards to grow out and get all scraggly and nasty, and they would let their hair grow out. They might smear ashes upon their faces. It was a status enhancer in a religious culture. If you fast like a hypocrite, all you'll get is a, is a hypocrite, hypocrite's praise. I'm mean, sure people will praise you. They will think you're a holy man or woman, but that's all you'll get. He says to gain lasting value, you need to make sure that you keep your fast between you and God. And God will see. And God will reward you. So I do want to talk to you this morning about fasting. Uh, it's, 
it's been said fasting is like the kale of the spiritual disciplines. We know it's good for us, but we don't want it to, want to order it off the menu. Uh, perhaps every year when Lent comes around, you'll engage in, I don't know, a Twitter fast or a Facebook fast, which is fine, but we, we don't like to give up our food, do we? And truth be told, we don't, we don't really know the good, the good reasons for fasting. So we'll talk about those. Number one, the first and primary reason for a Christian to fast is to embody their grief. We fast to enflesh our grief, our sadness. And there's a lot to grieve over in the world today. In the Old Testament, you see that fasting in Israel was a way to lament national grief. So something terrible happens in the country Maybe Israel's armies are routed in battle, and you'll find the people fasting. They would fast over impending troubles. They would fast under, uh, over attacks. They would fast when something you know, horrible might happen. And so too with us Christians. A Christian fast is in response to something out there that is bad. Many times we think of fasting as some kind of like divine quid pro quo. If I do this, then God will give me something that I want. But the primary reason in the Bible for fasting is simply to respond to the horrible things that are happening out there. Really, when you, when you are overcome with your grief, God invites you to manifest that to him in your body. And there's so much so much sad and calamitous, uh, so much grief in our hearts uh, you know, because of what's been going on in America over the last week and over the last year. I mean, how many times have you caught yourself saying something along the lines of, I thought I would never live to see the day, that dot, dot, dot. I thought I would never live to see the day when the reason that you fast is because you have lived to see the day, and that day is now. I want you to know, just like truth in advertising, I decided to preach a sermon on fasting last week. When I wanted to follow up on the sermon about using our bodies in worship with another way that we might use our bodies. I had no idea what was going to happen this week. and The sermon was in, in no way predicated on that. It just seemed like the Holy Spirit... <laughs> He knew, and he knew that this is so appropriate for our time right now. You know, all of us, we are so eager to put 2020 behind us. So eager, in fact, that we naively believe that there's something magical about changing the calendar. As, as though when we flip from December the 31st to January the 1st, some magic pixie dust will <laughs> fall off the page, right? But there's no guarantee 2021 will be better, right? We don't know that. I mean, it's possible 2021 could be worse. There were a whole lot of reasons to fast in 2020, and there will be many more reasons to fast, I think, in the coming year. A New Year's activity that I like to do every year, I don't know about you, but I like to go back and kind of reconsider how I did the previous 12 months. It can be rather depressing. But just to consider both how things have changed in your own life and and how you have changed, whether you've changed in what ways for the good and in what ways for the bad. And one of the things that I'm really disappointed at myself when I performed that this year, I look back over the last 12 months, 
Do you know how many times I fasted? Once. 365 days. It's like, really? Really, Brad? 24 hours and 365 days? One time? People died. Lots of people died. Homes and businesses were destroyed. Communities were shattered. And and you fasted once? What's made me the saddest about uh, what's happening in the world is, is looking at the church and just seeing how badly the church has been divided over politics. And you can, you can rest assured, I prayed about that. I prayed a lot about all of these things. But I didn't deny myself any food. And I thought, what does that say about me? I know I'm not alone. What does it say about you? The absence of food saps us of energy and (laughs) makes our stomachs a gurgling mess so that we can say, Lord, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see this mess? When we are overcome by grief, we have an opportunity to manifest that mess to God. It becomes especially meaningful in a longer, like more than one day, a multi-day fast. It's like, Lord, do you, I'm miserable right now. Do you see me in my misery? There's a special childlike catharsis that takes place when a parent notices their child. And so much of what our kids do, they act out in order to be noticed. There's a sweet catharsis which occurs when a parent notices their child and says, I see you. I I see how you're hurting It's fine to believe that God can and he does see inside our hearts. Sure, he sees inside our hearts, but he also wants to see our bodies. So if your heart is breaking right now for the church and the world, there's something you can do about it. Continuing on that same theme. So people in the Bible fast over national sorrows. They also fast over, unsurprisingly, personal sorrows. Like deeply, intensely personal sorrows. There are plenty of examples I could give from the Bible. You know, David fasting because of his many personal tragedies. But we kind of know this implicitly, don't we? I mean, it's the reason when somebody goes through a tragic situation, why is it that they lose 10 to 15 pounds in the course of a few weeks? Nobody has an appetite when their world is crumbling. All of us, every one of us, If we go through tragedy, we fast involuntarily. I hope it never happens to you that you answer that call or you have to respond to that knock at the door or you have to read that message that your spouse is leaving you. You have to hear the doctor say, your child is gone. But it's pretty hard to go through this life avoiding all of those, isn't it? And at those moments when it happens, we want to shout, stop the world! Stop the world. And your, your normal world, it stops. Over the course of the next several months uh, and weeks and months, normal world stops for you. All the normal activities and normal pleasures you normally do, they feel so inappropriate, so wrong. And the next thing you know, you've lost 10 pounds, you've lost 15 pounds, your, your friends are looking at your face and thinking, you, you don't look so... You don't look so good. The reason this happens 
God made our bodies to be in harmony with our spirits. And if the spirit is devastated, the, the body it yearns to be devastated. I mean, who cares about eating when everything tastes like garbage, when prime rib tastes like a bucket of sand? You don't want to eat? Who cares about food? That's how God designed our grief to work. I want you to notice how different this idea is than what, I don't know, the popular culture tells us. And th- this criticism, understand, it's coming from somebody who, who enjoys a lot of parts of pop culture. I'm always listening to music, popular music. But what, what pop culture tells a grief-stricken person, what it tells them to do is eat more food and drink like a fish. Like drive your F-150 to the bar, five shots in, you're dancing with Daisy Duke, right? So the course of every country song, and I love country music, but it tells you, uh, flood yourself with food and drink, and in flooding yourself with food and drink, what you end up doing is creating a disharmony between your spirit and your body. I mean, alcohol will make, it'll make you look like you're having the best time in the world, but it'll do that when your heart is broken. And that's completely unnatural. I think that somehow tears at our souls. I mean, you go out and you drink with friends, but why don't you go out and fast with friends? I mean, because the Christian response is for us to embody our pain. Don't run from it. Don't anesthetize it. Don't do those things because we were never meant by God to grieve that way. We're supposed to embody it. And it got me thinking, as I was going down that line, um, it got me thinking this week, I wonder if this is a way, an untapped way, that we can minister to other people in their grief. For instance, you have a close friend and you hear that they are, they've been diagnosed with stage five cancer, stage four, some really aggressive form of cancer. You feel devastated. And you ask yourself the question, uh, what can I do? I wish there was something more I could do for them. And we feel helpless, so we send them cards, we send them flowers, and we tell them, I'm praying for you, which is comforting, which is good. But what if that something more was to fast with them? What if the something more was to fast for them? What if, what if that something more was to sit in a metaphorical pile of ashes with them? I mean, how many people have you known in your life who have come up to you, other Christians come up to you and said, "Uh, I want you to know I'm praying for you and I'm fasting for you. It just seems to me that that's a powerful way we can show solidarity. I want to share the pain with you. I think it's an incredibly touching way for us to minister to others in their grief. So number one, in the Bible, we primarily fast to embody our grief, grief for things that have happened out there nationally or personally. The second reason for Christians to fast, in the Bible, people fast to feel the weight of their sin. The best place we can see this is on the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement. Arguably the most holy and important day in the Israelite calendar. You know, everybody would come to the Jeru- into Jerusalem There were tons of sacrifices that were made. It was the day that the high priest would go into the most holy place to make atonement for all of the previous year's sins, to make purification for the defilement that had fallen upon the tabernacle or or the temple. It was also the only mandated fast day 
in all of the Jewish calendar. It was the only time that God said, you must fast. And it's what we call an absolute fast. So you had to fast from eating anything. It was a fast from food and water for 24 hours. They also attached to it other monastic activities that you were expected to do. You had to sleep that night on the floor. You had to avoid bathing. You had to avoid anointing your faces with oil, and you had to abstain from sexual intercourse. That sounds like a pretty miserable 24 hours, doesn't it? Was it, was, was it God's way of reminding them? Like, hey guys, sin is miserable. It is this miserable. I mean, truth be told, there are many times when we sin, we don't feel very sorry about it. Like, not at all. I mean, even the best of us, whatever that means, whoever is the best of us, like, who of us feel the gravity of our own sin? I mean, could it be God was saying, I want you to feel miserable one day to help you realize how awful this is. Yeah, maybe it was kind of an emotional jolt for them. Perhaps you've gone through a season in your life, I'm sure you have, where you felt emotionally neutered. You know what I mean? You couldn't feel much of anything. You know, the, there weren't very high highs and there weren't very low lows. It was like, you're not sad enough to cry, you're not joyful enough to dance. And all of life feels muted. Well, the same phenomena can take place in a Christian's spiritual world. You wake up one morning and you realize that sorrow for sin is missing inside of me. It is. And so is joy. So is the joy for the atonement of Christ on the cross. It's like faith on Prozac. <laughs> you know, you look up at the cross and, and you say, I believe it. I, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I feel fine about that. It's, it's spiritual fine. I'm fine. You're fine. Everything is just fine. I'm not promising you that fasting will break you out of that cycle. I'm not saying to you this morning that fasting is some kind of spiritual silver bullet that is going to you know, fix all of that. Let me caution you. It's always possible to become an even worse version of yourself if you do religious things for the wrong reasons. And so you could, as did the early church, fast every Wednesday and Friday for three months and not improve. At the same time, God, he can do a lot with sincerity. (laughs) He really can. He can do a lot with a man or woman who, who admits that I am broken inside, Lord. I don't feel the way that I should feel. I don't feel the way I should feel about you or about me or about much of anything. But I want to get better. I want to get better. Many people don't want to get better. You've learned that, haven't you? And there are seasons in our own lives when we, we really aren't that interested in getting better. But down there in the depths of hunger, we have an opportunity to contemplate not only what's wrong in the world, but what how we have contributed to what is wrong in the world. How my sin has contributed to what's wrong in my home and in my relationships, in our communities. You have time in the depths of hunger to think more about your sin and the sadness of it all. Because it is all, it is tragically sad. 
You have more time to contemplate and pray in a world of busyness. And I think God can work with that. (laughs) He can. We all know, we all know that you have got to feel the weight of your sin in order to feel the glory of the cross of Christ, right? Number three, fasting has the potential to recalibrate a Christian spiritual appetite. In the Bible, the problem is not with our bodies. That was Victorianism. The problem was with your body. No, the problem is with our appetites. Lust is not a body problem. It is an appetite problem. It's a sexual appetite problem. Sloth is not a body problem. It's a comfort problem. It's an it's a appetite for comfort too much. Gluttony is food too much. And when you consciously choose to deny yourself food, that's hard. All forms of self-denial are difficult, as are all forms of self-discipline. But if we use discipline, like physical discipline, to train our bodies, and our bodies, as I said earlier in the service, are intertwined with our souls, then could it be that discipline upon our body will have a positive effect on our souls? Isn't that what Paul seems to be getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Those famous words, 10, uh, not 10, 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Shadow boxing, that's where it comes from. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Message, he translates it this way. He says, you've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs. One wins. Why don't you run to win? All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades You are after the one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No more sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert. I'm staying in top condition. I'm not going to be caught napping, telling everyone else all about it, and then missing out myself. This is kind of the whole Jordan Peterson You may have heard that name. Uh, What he says to young men in our culture, he's not a Christian, but he has a lot of good things to say to young men. He says, guys, before you go out and change the world, why don't you learn to make your bed? Why don't you learn how to start your day and every single day make your, your bed? In the same case, before you're ready to be a husband or a father, why don't you learn to control your appetite? Uh, Young women too. It's equally applicable to you. You're going to have to learn to control your appetite. It's just the ABCs of discipline. And nobody likes discipline, but it is critical. If you want to get anywhere, anywhere, in work, in music, right, in in athletics, anything, you've got to learn self-control, moderation, and restraint. Fasting has at least the potential to train us in those ABCs. And then there's this great quote I can't stumble across on the front of your bulletin from D. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is something that every American Christian needs to hear, isn't it? Quote, satiated flesh. Satiated is a fancy word for satisfied, overly satisfied. Satiated flesh is unwilling to pray and unfit for self-sacrifice. He's saying if you're a fat American cat, if you're a fat cat, you're going to be complacent. You won't be ready to lay down your life for Jesus. You won't be ready to take up your cross and follow him wherever he calls you to go. You won't be ready. You'll be stuck on the sofa, binge-watching Hulu, right? You'll be spiritually complacent. If you have everything you need in this life, then you're, you're not ready to run. And you're certainly not ready to win. Number four, and closely related to number three. My hands are freezing. Christianity is about being hungry for God. And fasting has the potential. I've noticed, I said that in the last two points. It has the potential to uh, make you more hungry for God. Fasting can increase that hunger. A new practice for me in the new year has been to keep a pad of paper with me at all times so I can jot down my uh, thoughts. Brilliant that they are, I'm sure. <laughs> I know that if I don't jot it down on a piece of paper, it, poof, it will be gone. And so here's what I jotted down over the last couple of weeks. I desire, I desire good things, but I desire them too much. I desire good things but I desire them for the wrong reasons. I desire good things, but I lack the self-control to enjoy them in moderation. And I desire bad things. <laughs> I desire bad things too. We all need a reset. We all need to recalibrate. You fast because you want to hunger after God more. You fast because you want to desire the kingdom more. Uh, the kingdom of God like, must be the singular vision for the church in America as we move forward. Um, and, and what does his kingdom consist of? What does the kingdom of God, what is it the kingdom of God all about? Paul says the kingdom of God consists, consists in all righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And if you want more righteousness and joy and peace, uh, you fast to enjoy those things. And then ultimately, the last thing I wrote was, uh, I fast to feed more fully on Christ. Because that's what I really want, to feed more fully on Christ. Now, in writing this sermon, I never intended to give you all the details of how frequently you should be fasting or when you should be fasting or none of that. It's between you and God. It's as the Holy Spirit leads you. And I also was not intending to make this. This is not the comprehensive sermon on fasting. There are plenty of other good reasons to fast. These include Christians fast to strengthen their prayers to seek God's guidance on issues, to prepare them for ministry, to seek deliverance and protection from danger, to express genuine repentance for what they've done, to humble themselves before God, to overcome whatever temptations they are facing, and simply to give you more time to pray in a busy world. Where I want to conclude is with a very obvious observation uh, that you already know, and that is, how does food taste when you break a fast? <laughs> it tastes so good. All the flavors, they explode 
in your mouth. Food tastes amazing when you are done. And if I could use that as a metaphor, it seems to me that the church in America and the church, for that matter, in the rest of the world, we have been on a fast as a church. We have been fasting for the last over or about 12 months. And we're going to continue to fast in this coming year. Christians haven't been able to come to worship. They haven't been able to come to the table. Even if you've watched worship online, you know it's not the same. And again, that's not to bug you and say you need to be here right now because there are plenty of good reasons to remain at home. But we've had to fast from spending time together as a community. We've had to fast from all the, all the churchy stuff that we do that you know, hopefully we find significance in Christian formation classes and community outreach and service to the world. Like all the things that make the church special, we've been denied. What I am praying for, for All Saints and for the church in America, is that whenever this thing ends, the food would taste so good again. I'm, I believe that God can use, and I hope that he is using this time of fasting to increase in us hunger for good food. And if you listen to all of the pundits in the church world, they suggest that it's not going to be pretty going forward. They say that when COVID is over, most churches in America will have lost 25 to 35% of the people who were there pre-COVID. Giving in churches is going to be down by the same kind of amount. They're basically saying, like, church is never going to be the same again. Maybe you've even worried about that. Is church ever going to be the same again? I'm praying, no, it won't. I'm praying that like, we would taste and see how good God is. We taste and see how good fellowship is and how worship together is and how the table is and how the, the word is. Um, what I'm praying is that God will use this time to make us hungry for good food and good and all of the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. If Jesus, if his food was to do the will of his father in heaven, like Jesus, make your church eat that food too. Amen. And so what I, I do invite you to please pray this with me. You know, maybe the church has nibbled so long at the table of the world that she's gotten fat and complacent. Maybe the church has stuffed herself with small things and there's no room inside for great things. And maybe God's going to use this COVID fast to change all that. Isn't that what gospel optimism is all about? I mean, we can look forward and see nothing but doom and gloom and pessimism, but isn't there a way to interpret events hopefully in Christ that he really can do some like, awesome spiritual revival? That's what we need. It is. So I hope you'll pray that with me. Finally, a Christian always fasts in anticipation of the feast. We do. We fast in anticipation of the great feast that God is going to throw at the end of time. I wonder if Jesus isn't actually hinting at this in verse 7. If he is, it's rather subtle. But when he tells his disciples that you are to wash your face and you were to anoint your head, do you have any idea what they would do that prior to? Yes, prior to a feast. 
You can see all through the Old Testament, the washing and the anointing is something you would normally do in preparation for a feast. Is this way, Jesus' way of saying that our fasting is not all doom and gloom? It's consistent with the fact that he has come to throw a banquet, a banquet that prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners like us get invited to. It's consistent with the fact that the feast has already begun. He started the feast. The banquet is here. And yet the banquet is still future. And whenever we fast, whenever we fast, we must fast in that anticipation. May I say, if you're someone who has maybe not yet crossed the line of faith into believing Jesus, um, maybe something for you to consider is, is simply this. Jesus came to throw a party and he wants you to be at the party. <laughs> You, know, you could use this sermon on fasting of all the sermons in the world. Like, why not fast in order to find God? People do that. If you have your doubts about whether or not God exists and all this, this um, those are perfectly reasonable doubts. Why not fast to find God? You know, when, we are, when we feel hunger, we have more time for contemplation. We have more space to, eat, to ask the needed questions in our lives like, what am I really hungering for? What, have you asked yourself that question recently? What am I really hungering for? If you're like any, any of us, all the rest of us, you're hungering for love. You're hungering for meaning and purpose. You're hungering for bread. You're hungering for life. You're hungering for the bread of life. You're hungering for Jesus. And the good news of the gospel that I get to proclaim to you is Christ has come as a groom to uh, gather a bride. And Christ has come as a prince to rescue the maiden. And Christ has, has come, he's been eaten by the dragon. He laid down his life to rescue the maiden. He laid down his life for you. As I already said, there is a feast that is still ahead of us that God has promised for us. But Jesus came and he's begun the feast of the kingdom. The feast of the kingdom is already here and it is already now. So why not join in it? And if you ever want to talk about uh, more of what this means, I hope you know whether you know, you're here or whether you're tuning in online uh, or rather, whether you listen to the sermon some other day as it's posted on the internet, uh, my door is always open. And if you ever want to grab coffee to find out more about Jesus and what, more about what it means to meet Jesus, um, yeah, hit me up. Only after you discover your true hunger will you realize it's Jesus whom you've been looking for. And the wonderful truth is that he's been looking for you too. Amen.